We'd like to welcome you back to part 5 of our current event and weekly Bible study for 62208. 62208. This is part 5 of um, the teaching on the doctrine of blood guilt. And um, Nonetta just brought up a good point too that probably we should touch upon regarding you know, all the people out there that all these babies that haven't been born you know, we have no idea who those people may have turned out to be, what they may have grown up to be. Um, the Bible says that, in, in Jeremiah, it says, Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So we don't know, we have no clue what we're doing from a historical standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, when we do this as well. Now, there's another thing that I should touch on. I've done a whole teaching on contraception. And you can key in the word contraception. Most women don't understand, or most men don't understand, that much of the contraception that's out there actually does abort um, babies. It will many times let, particularly the, quote, the pill, will let conception happen. And like with the pill, one of the main reasons that it works is that it, it creates an inhospitable environment in the uterus where the egg cannot, the fertilized egg cannot implant. Well, if, if the Lord said, before I formed thee in the womb, I ordained thee a prophet and knew thee, then he knows us before we're even conceived. And, and life begins at conception. It's absolute fact. Well, you can go, there's a lot of verses where you can prove that too. And I went over those in, in previ previous teachings there. Um... Those things like the IUD, it just prevents, it prevents, um, it creates an inhospitable environment in the uterus that doesn't implant, that doesn't allow the uh, fertilized egg to implant. See, again, if we go back a hundred years ago, we wouldn't have this conversation at all. Now, is, is in God's eyes, if you take the pill, and, you know, I, I think it's, I think any of it, I think any of it trying to control the birth of a child, do we really have that right? Do we really have that right to say, I'm going to say when I have a child, and I'm going to you're playing God. Well, yeah, if, if I had, um, if I took contraception for 10 years, and let's say over the course of those 10 years, you ended up, there were, I don't know, let's just say, for argument's sake, 20 eggs that were fertilized and died because they couldn't implant. Are any of those 20 eggs that were fertilized and died, are any of those less precious in God's sight than an aborted baby? Or, let's carry it further, or a child that you ended up having. And, if you're doing this on a consistent basis, do you think you might be bringing a curse on yourself? Innocent blood crying out from the land. You're not going to hear this very many places. But see, my life's not a popularity contest. And if you doubt this, please listen to my teaching on contraception before you email me and rail on me. Because he that judgeth the matter, before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. Now, I'm not, like I said, I was Mr. Pro-Abortion for a long time. That's how I grew up. That's all I ever knew. So I'm not sitting here trying to act like I'm Mr. Holier than thou. I'm just saying. It was wrong when I was doing it. 
or when I believed in it. I'm not excusing myself either. But to whom much is given, much is required. And if you find out truth, it's it's. It, do we find out truth so we can just keep it under our hat and share it with no one, or do we find out truth so that we can share it with others and hopefully they'll get set free from a particular bond? Because this is bondage. You not knowing about sin, well, does that mean you won't still pay the price? Why does the Why do you think the Bible says in Hosea four six that my children are destroyed for lack of knowledge? Lack of knowledge can destroy you. You could be bringing a curse on yourself and not even knowing it. Well, I love you enough to tell you the truth. Galatians 4.16 says, I may therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. That's what usually happens. You tell somebody the truth, you become their enemy. Oh well. Oh well. If I, All it really matters to me is if I'm right with God. The Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is not a popularity contest. Blessed are ye when all men shall revile you and persecute for my name's sake. For great is your reward in heaven. That's what Jesus said. You're blessed when you're reviled and persecuted for his sake. For the sake of righteousness. Or true truth. The Bible says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved their life not unto the death. They, they you know, whether they lived or died. Says... So if we go further, it was this particular aspect of the doctrine of blood guiltiness more than any other that leaped off the pages of scripture to illuminate my understanding. It powerfully convicted me and clearly revealed to me how much blood guiltiness is an intricate part of the gospel message. Typically many churches believe that a mention that to mention abortion or the shedding of innocent blood from the pulpit is tantamount to detracting from the gospel. That's pitiful. Hopefully by the time you finish this report, that perspective will forever be changed. Far from detracting from the gospel, the doctrine of blood guiltiness actually enhances the gospel. In fact, apart from these truths, the gospel with its urgent call to repentance makes no biblical sense. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a powerful message. The Bible teaches that when Peter completed his message, many hearts were pierced to the core and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, hopefully this message is going to cause that same, elicit that same response and let's say some people that were operating in these things and they weren't aware of it. They were being destroyed for lack of knowledge. Most believe, including myself at one time, that this response was due to the overwhelming convicting power of the Holy Spirit which brought, life, which brought to life the prophecies to those who were under the sound of Peter's voice. Though I believe that perspective is still valid, it doesn't take into account Peter's specific indictment against the men and brethren of Israel concerning the crucifixion of Christ. He confronted them with this stinging accusation concerning Jesus. Uh, Acts 2.23 Acts 2.23 Acts 2.23 well, let's just go to 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Now remember, the Jews seek the sign, but the Greeks seek after knowledge. That's what the Bible says. See, God always dealt with the Jews with signs and wonders. That's why 
Jesus Christ, when He came to His own and His own received Him not, how did He come to His own? He came to His own from a biblical perspective, from an Old Testament, Levitical, biblical perspective, with signs and wonders and miracles. Okay? That was why he, you know, the primary reason that, that, that all that happened back then. It says, A man approved of God among you by the miracles and the wonders and the signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. It wasn't a question of if he did them. We, he, they knew he did them. The miracles and the signs and the wonders. It says, Him being delivered by determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Who was Peter indicting? He was indicting the men of Israel. Oh, you can't preach. This is hate speech. That's what they're saying. That's what this... this um, um, Ted Pike of that national prayer network, he's documenting this, they're, they're, they're passing laws, they've already passed them, that the Bible is hate speech, because it says that the Jews, or Israel, crucified Jesus Christ. Oh, you can't say that. We don't want his blood on our hands. It really doesn't matter. They asked for his blood to be upon their hands. They asked Pilate, when he said, should I give you Barabbas or Jesus? They said, no, crucify Jesus. Let Jesus' blood be upon us and our children. They brought themselves under a collective curse until their eyes be open. Blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. That's why it happened. Blindness in part for our benefit. That, that the wild olive branches could be grafted in as it talks about in Romans. We're the wild olive, olive branches as a Gentile. We don't boast against the natural branches, which are the which are the true Israel people. We don't boast against all oh, uh, you know, nanny nanny boo boo. We we're we got saved and you didn't. You're blind. No, that's not the attitude you take at all. Okay, but I'm saying that from a biblical standpoint, and I've done teachings on this. I, I believe it was entitled like the biblical reasons for Israel's afflictions. It's not anti-Semitic. It's just the Bible. They're going to have their eyes opened eventually. But they're going to pay a heavy price. And I've done teachings on that too. We don't have time to go down that, that particular path today. But Peter's indicting them. It says, You've taken them by wicked hands have crucified him. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death could not hold our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, was holding the crowd responsible, though most of them were probably not present at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, for the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. In essence, he held them accountable to the doctrine of blood guiltiness, which is what we're talking about today. It's true. They did. Obviously, being Israelites, the crowd instinctively knew the implications. Because, see, they were trained in the doctrine of blood guiltiness back then. We're not trained in it now. According to their law, their deaths were required to atone for the putting to death of an innocent man. Once that doctrine was driven home, 
and the power of the Holy Spirit was there to cut them to their core, can there be any doubt that they were, that they were anxious for their own souls? They knew they were in trouble. To further illustrate this biblical phenomenon, consider the hostile reaction that came from the Sanhedrin concerning the gospel message. They reminded the, they reminded the apostles. Now let's go to um, Acts 5.28. Acts 5.28. This is regarding the, uh, the Sanhedrin, regarding the gospel message. They said, saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name, in the name of Jesus Christ? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Which, this was a true statement. Then it says, um, well actually I forgot to read verse 27. And when they had brought them, had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? Behold, we have filled, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, which was the true doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This man goes on to say, I must have read this passage for years and never saw it through the grid of blood guiltiness. I assume that they were just upset with the content of the gospel message. The name of Jesus are supposedly a new doctrine that at least in their minds was contaminating Jerusalem, but this was not so. They were also very much concerned about the doctrine of blood guiltiness. For if indeed Christ was put to death, an innocent man, and they were consenting to it, they were guilty of his innocent blood. This is true. They were starting to see it probably themselves to a certain extent. Eventually Israel, because they refused to repent, did suffer the punishment of blood guiltiness. Jesus declared in Matthew 23, 34 and 35, where he said, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men, and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and, and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barakas, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. See, Jesus knew about the doctrine of blood guiltiness. So about one million Jews were killed and another million Jews went into captivity in 70 AD. As a result of this prophecy uttered in the Gospel of Matthew by our Savior. So see, there was a tremendous price to pay there. And they're still blind to the truth, for the most part. Remember, blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. When the fullness of the Gentile come in, Whenever the last Gentile gets saved, that's supposed to get saved, I believe that this, this blindness is going to start to be lifted off the Jew. It's probably going to coincide with the start of the tribulation. Now, I can't be absolutely 100% dogmatic about that. It might not occur until near the end of the tribulation. You can make a biblical case for that, too. 
I believe from Zechariah, where it talks about one-third of the Jews being refined through the fire, and two-thirds of the Jews perishing, or Israel, I should say. Again, that's a whole other study I've done. But, and you could... The uh, biblical cause for Israel's affliction, I believe. If you even put in the word afflicted or affliction, you should find it in the studies that I've done. It has nothing to do with being anti-Semitic. We're just talking about the Bible here. I pray to God they all get saved if it be possible, but I know it's not. I know, you know, the Bible says, "This narrow is the way which leadeth unto life eternal, and few there be that find it. It does say all of Israel will be saved, though. It does say that in the New Testament. But I believe it's going to be all of the remaining Israel that were tried through the fire will be saved after two-thirds have perished in the tribulation. Again, I shouldn't even be going down that rabbit trail. See that other teaching for you to get the full biblical outlook on that that I mentioned. The burning question that must be answered today is, will God also require us to give an account, regardless if we have personally been involved in abortion or not? The Israelites implicated by our Lord were not even alive when most of the righteous blood was shed, and yet it was still indicted upon them. Now that's scary. Think about that. The Israelites implicated by our Lord, when he said this last quote about that upon you may all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias of Baracus, whom you slew between the temple and altar. The Israelites implicated by our Lord were not even alive when most of this righteous blood was shed. And yet our Lord still indicted them. The scriptural evidence is overwhelmingly pointing to the uh, yes to this answer. What can the church do in the midst of this holocaust and threat of divine retribution? How can we clear ourselves into this grave matter before God? Isaiah 1, 10-18 grants a glimmer of hope in God's directives. Quote, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. God's talking to Sodom and Gomorrah here. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me. Did you realize they were sacrificing unto God in Sodom and Gomorrah? You'd think, no, they were just totally given over to a reprobate mind. Well, yeah, they were, but it says that they were, they were actually giving multitudes of sacrifices to God. Well, this is your typical churchgoer, particularly if you look at the Catholic model. Well, bless God, I can go, and I can go to the priest confessional, and I can take my son God, Eucharist, little wafer God, and I can get my last rites, and I can have somebody pray me out of purgatory, and I can do my seven sacraments, like the Baltimore Catechism tells me to do, and I can go and worship Mary, and I can make my pilgrimages on my knees, and do all these things, all these works of man, to earn my way to heaven, and it'll smooth everything over with God, because I've earned my own righteousness, when the Bible says that all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we are all together as an unclean thing, and we all do fade as doth a leaf. Isaiah 64, 6, that's what the God says about our righteousness. And that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God. God says, what's the purpose of is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, it says. It doesn't even say unto Baal. So, a lot of people probably don't realize that. that, that 
They were sacrificing unto God. I mean, I'm sure there was other gods they were sacrificing to too. But it was their version of bro cream religion. A little dabble do ya. Well, we'll sacrifice to you know, the God of the Israelites and we'll sacrifice to Baal and that way we got all their bases covered. And we can live like the devil and everything's good. What is the purpose of the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or the lamb of or lambs or of he goats. Remember, the Bible says obedience is better than sacrifice. And rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Well, they were rebelling against God is what they were doing. Which God equates to the sin of witchcraft. And then God says, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Why did he say it was iniquity? Well, I understand Old Testament Levitical Jew, Old Testament Levitical Israelites were under the Old Testament Levitical law. And that in and of itself wasn't an abomination. But if you were doing these things with all kind of sin and wickedness in your own heart, it becomes an abomination to God. Because it's false religion. Well, this is what they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of what? Of blood. Your hands are full of blood. So that's what God was saying in this particular portion of scripture, that their hands were full of blood. Now, you could also make a case that this, he's equating Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just that he uses the literal term Sodom and Gomorrah actually two different times in verses 9 and verses 10. I believe they had gotten that bad. Israel... Because it says in verse 1, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Okay, so, this is to them. And evidently, they've gotten so bad that he's, he's essentially equating them with Sodom and Gomorrah. Which is not the kind of indictment that you want to have. It says in verse 16 then, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the followers, plead for the widow. You see this common theme? Verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, they Though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. It, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. That's what's coming to America and most of the world. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So the prophet Isaiah gave this word to a nation steeped in blood guilt. Not only was Sodom and Gomorrah steeped in blood guilt, but so was the nation of Israel. Obviously, God equated them together. 
Obviously, when God calls his people Sodom and Gomorrah, this is not a good report from heaven. Though Israel had all the outward religious forms in operation, their substance of true worship and devotion to God was in name only. They drew nigh to God with their lips, but in their hearts, thinking obedience and lifestyles, they were far from him. Though they still went to the temple and the synagogues, they were a people who mingled with and assimilated the, the idols of the land and the spirit of the age. <clears throat> As Israel went through all the religious requirements defiled by pagan thought and practice, it became clear that God was not pleased with them. He refused to endorse or approve their meetings with their presence. Why? Because their hands were covered with innocent blood. And even though they made many prayers and lifted their hands up in worship, God refused to see or hear them. America, like Israel before her, is also steeped in blood guilt through the sin and the crime of abortion, just to name one, but the main one, I believe. Will God treat us any different from his former covenant people? Well, God's no respecter of persons. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. I am the Lord God, I changeth not. Well, in fact, we may incur a harsher judgment for too much that has been given much shall be required, according to Luke 12.48. Let's also go to 1 Peter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. Be ye therefore sober. They need to tell that to the people up in Lakeland. Oh no, we're drunk in the spirit. Show me the biblical precedent for that. Oh, brother, this is the new wine. And you know, wine gets you drunk. And God's doing a new thing. Well, the Bible says that, you know, to be sober, to watch unto prayer, to live according to God and the Spirit. And then it says in verse 8, Above all, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Charity shall cover the multitude of sins? Now again, we know that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can cover sin debt. Um, but charity is not what in the modern day world we think of charity to be. Charity in the Old Testament, if you get a Noah's Webster's 1828, and you can go up on the internet and find the Noah Webster Dictionary for free, online versions, and you can key in these words, or look for them. Charity in the Webster's 1828, which more clearly defines the words as they were written in the King James Bible, is essentially defined as the highest embodiment of love. You know, it's almost like the full embodiment of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, okay? We're going to prove that in a second. Um, let's just go, let's, let's do a little more studying on this. If we go now, let's go to Proverbs 10, verse 2. Proverbs 10, verse 2. I'm going to go over several verses that relate to this. These are some, th some proactive things we can do as Christians regarding, this is kind of applies to the doctrine of blood guilt. Proverbs 10, verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 12. Proverbs 10, verse 12. 
Hatred stirreth up stripes, but love covereth all sins. Huh. Love covereth all sins. Remember, the highest embodiment of love is, is charity. Okay? James 5.20 James 5.20 Let's see here. I'm turning to these as well. James 5.20 Let him know well, let's just read verse 19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, that's what really my ministry is about. I was in error from the truth, and I was, you know, I got on the right track. That's what this, this ministry is all about. A, as a teaching and a watchman type ministry. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, I'm not saying that we go around and, you know, the blood of Jesus Christ is what covers sin. But it does say here, now, how could this be? What, what does this mean in this particular context? Well, okay, let's, let's say... There was an example I heard one time of a man that had was preaching on like a street corner, or no, he's preaching in a pool hall, and he was basically right out of the pool hall, and some guy that was in the pool hall came up to him afterward and said, you know, preacher, I got to talk to you. I found my uh, girlfriend in bed with this with this man, and I'm and I here's the gun. I'm going to go up there and kill him right now. And this is a good extreme example, because I, I, it, it'll just drive this point home. So the preacher talked to him, you know, from a biblical perspective, and he talked the guy out of doing this, and, and he led the guy to the Lord right there. And the guy actually gave him, I think he gave him the bullets, and he went, and he went in the opposite direction. The, the murder never happened, he never killed him. Well, in this regard, had that person not intervened, had the preacher not been there, that guy would have went up there and killed both the, the girlfriend and, or I don't know if his wife or his girlfriend, but it, the girlfriend or wife and her lover. By doing what he did, and you give the Lord Jesus Christ the credit, but he stopped that transgression, those sins from ever happening. The Lord used him to intervene. Therefore, covering a multitude of sins by these actions. I believe that's the context that we're looking at here. Okay, above all, have fervent charity. Freely have you received, freely give. Well, that's an aspect of charity, right? Well, that's what I pretty much, I'm trying to do with these teachings. I'm just, I put them up on, I'm not charging anybody for them. I mean, I do appreciate any donations that come into this ministry because I'm putting in tremendous amount of time on this every week. I mean, way more than any than my other job. <laughs> And it's getting to the point now where it's almost becoming untenable for me because I'm getting so many emails. We had almost, we had over 30,000 downloads the last two months and it's growing from there. So I, I just pray, I, I'm asking you to pray for me that the Lord would open a door for me to be able to actually do this full time. Because it's getting to a point now where I can't do it all. I'm only one person trying to do everything. But 
in this regard, where it talks about charity covering the multitude of sins, you know, freely if you receive, freely give. You know, if you see somebody in a burning house, I do believe it's our duty to tell them that they're in a burning house. If the Lord opens that door, I mean, obviously. Let's go further. Colossians 3.14 Colossians 3.14 Okay, Colossians 3.14 It says, And above all these things put on charity. Above all, it says. Well, let's just read verse 12. Put on, therefore, the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. Remember, if you don't show mercy to others, you will not obtain from mercy. If you don't forgive your brother, you're not going to get forgiveness from God. So, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. See, meekness, long-suffering, all these things aren't... We're not taught that in the church. Oh no, you should be proud and this and that. And Who needs to be humble? Who needs to be meek? Meek means weak. No, it doesn't. Meekness does not equate with weakness. Well, how can you biblically prove that? <laughs> Easily. Moses, it said, was the meekest man on earth. He also had a pretty fiery temper. That actually, that temper caused him not to go into the promised land, unfortunately. That's a whole other study. But, he wasn't weak. He was strong in the Lord. See, the more meek and weak and humble you are before God, the, the more strength you're going to have when dealing with your fellow man. Typically, that's how it usually goes. You get humble and on your face before God and you really mean it, you'll be bold before men. If you fear God, you won't fear man. Because you can't really be operating both things. The fear of man bringeth a snare, it says. But the fear of God will help you stand up to anything that you're going to come in contact with from a worldly standpoint. <clears throat> so, verse 13, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you also, do ye? You know how many people are walking around in churches and they're having grudges against one another? Man, I got done wrong by a lot of people in, in the church. I don't, I don't hold any unforgiveness against them. Now, I think it's impossible just to forgive and forget. I think it's scriptural. But I don't think you can actually take it out of your memory banks unless God so chooses to do it. But you can forgive them. We, we're, we're commanded to forgive them. And to have mercy. Even to have mercy on our enemies. It says, if your enemy is thirsty, give him water. If he's, if he's hungry, give him food. For you shall keep holes of, coals of hot fire on his head. You're going to put him on a biblical guilt trip, essentially. Which is good for him. He needs to be on that. Or she. I'm talking from a biblical perspective. Verse 14, and above all these things, it says, above all, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, 
to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. It's very important to be thankful. The first thing where it talks about in Romans, verse 1, where it, it ends up going on to talk about men burning after men, and women burning after women, and women departing from the natural use of their body, and being turned over to a reprobate mind, and all the wickedness. The first thing it mentions about when they departed was when they became unthankful. That's when, that's when the turning point came. If you're a born-again Christian, be thankful. You're on your way to heaven. They that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So I think that's not earning your way to heaven. It's proof that you are saved. You're going to endure to the end. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. He's going to give you everything you need to get through this. But you need to do your part too. Praying, fasting, trying to live whole, you know, fruit of the Spirit, getting in the Word of God, these types of things. Then it says in verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Is the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly with all wisdom? Because see, the Word of Christ, when it dwells within you, you will get wisdom. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Psalm 119 verse 9. Thy, her, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119 verse 11. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119 105. So, it's very important to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with the grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's pretty, that's pretty neat. Well, that also relates to charity. We're talking about charity right now. Because it talks about charity covering the multitude of sins. If you walk in charity, which is the highest embodiment of the word love in the Bible which is what we're, we're getting the full definition by looking at all these other verses. Your life is going to cover the multitude of sins. Because you're going to be a light under the world. You're going to be a lamp. You're going to be salt and light. You're going to be salt like you're preserving the environment that you're in. That's what salt does. It's a preservative. It can also be a really big potential irritant. You ever get salt in your eye? Well, truth is offensive to most people. It's an irritant. And light always exposes darkness. Being salt and light is walking in charity. Because you love them enough to tell them the truth. Let's go further. 1 Corinthians 13. I don't think I've ever done a study on this before. But this is a very, very important thing. And I think it relates, it's, it's a good time to bring it up with this doctrine of blood guilt. Because I want to give you remedies as well. I don't want to just give you, okay, this is the doctrine of blood guilt. Bless God, we're all going to die and rot and be caught up. No, I I believe God is perfectly capable of protecting His remnant. But we need to know, you know, what is our part? What? How should we be living? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Charity suffereth long. This is the attributes of charity. It suffereth long. It's long-suffering. Okay? And is kind... Charity envieth not. It doesn't envy. Envy also implies 
what's the next thing after you envy? Jealousy. Okay? Now I know God is a jealous God. Okay, he's jealous over our souls. If we're his child, yeah, he's jealous over us when we depart from him. There is a godly form of jealousy. Okay? There's also a very unbiblical form of jealousy, which is what Satan exemplified. He was jealous of God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be greater than God. Okay? That's a warped jealousy. But charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It doesn't vaunt itself. It doesn't like... Well, again, it is not puffed up. Is the first, next part of that verse. It's not proud, in other words. It doth not behave itself unseemingly. It seeketh not her own. What does that imply? Not being self-centered. When, you, when you're not seeking your own, you're not being self-centered, right? If you think about it, self-centeredness is almost the root of every sin there is in the Bible. Isn't it? Was it the first sin of the Bible that was recorded ever where we just talked about with Satan? It says because of his beauty he was lifted up and because of his merchandise in Ezekiel. So his beauty and his merchandise, he got proud, and then he was envying God, and then he became jealous of God, and then he wanted to be like the Most High. And he said, I will ascend on the sides of the north, I will be like the Most High. He became totally delusional in his thought pattern, obviously, and him and a third of the angels fell. But see, he was seeking his own. He became totally self-centered. He started worshipping the God of self. But see, charity does the opposite. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked either. <laughs> Do you know how many people are so thin-skinned that call themselves Christians? Oh, man! Thin-skinned! By that I mean easily provoked. Easily offended. You can't say anything to them. Don't you love those type of people that you got to walk around? It's like walking around on eggshells all the time. You're afraid you're going to offend them. Man, I can't stand living that way. But that's the opposite of charity. Usually the people that are easily offended are that way on purpose. You know why? Because when they get offended at you, which is inevitable, then they can turn around and put the spotlight on you and blame you for everything because you're the one to blame. Because they got their little feelings hurt. Because you couldn't read your mind, their mind. You failed mind reading 101 in college. Remember? You failed that class. Oh, they get easily offended. And then they can blame you. And they can put the spotlight, which so rightly belongs on themselves. They can turn the spotlight on you. And now you're the bad guy. And they can blame you for all whatever they want to blame you for. I've been there, done that live that way it wasn't very fun not easily provoked seeketh not her own thinketh no evil rejoices not in iniquity doesn't rejoice in sin but rejoiceth in the truth well there's not a lot of charity in the churches then according to this we got the most bunch of most for the most part in the average church particularly in America you could just reverse all this. They don't have this dynamic happening in the church. They're proud. They're haughty. They backbite. They gossip. They're puffed up. They behave themselves unseemingly, especially the charismatic circles. They don't live sober. They're not vigilant. They glory in their shame. They seeketh their own. 
They're easily provoked. They think evil all the time. And they call it, they think they're delivered to these abominations. They do rejoice in iniquity. They don't rejoice in truth and they don't want it. And you will be your enemy. They, you will be their enemy if you do tell them the truth. Fine. If they want to account me as their enemy, you know, fine. The Bible says there's going to come a time when they that, that kill you think if they're going to do God's service. Remember, nothing happens apart from the Lord's watchful eye. You know. Then it says, verse 7, they, Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. It doesn't mean when you believe all things, it falls for any lie either. Okay, this is the whole thing about long-suffering. Enduring all things, your long-suffering. Charity never faileth. But whether there shall be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there, sh whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Now the charismatics don't want to talk about that verse. Whether there shall be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Let's go further. Matthew 5, 7. Actually, it looks like Matthew 5... Um, let's just read most of these. And seeing the multitudes, he went, this is Jesus, up on, a mon up on a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and opened his mouth, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit... The poor in spirit means a contrite or a broken spirit. doesn't mean they're poor, they don't got money. It has nothing to do with that. Blessed are the poor, which are the contrite, the humble, the meek, the broken in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Bible says in Ecclesiastics that there is wisdom in the house of mourning. Not in the morning like the sun coming up, mourning like they're mourning... Wisdom is in the house of mourning. Because it causes a man to consider his own end. How things are all going to turn out. It says the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. Myrrh is like frivolous um, jesting and, and, and um, partying and that type of thing. The, the fools are in the house of myrrh. It's kind of funny that the Masons have a sect which I plan on doing a teaching on. They're called the Jesters. The Masons, the Freemasons. they got the Shriners, but there's something higher than the Shriners. These are the guys that really control everything. They're called the Jesters. And their motto is Myrrh. I think it's Myrrh is King. And they have this, their little, their little mascot for the Jesters is this thing called a Billiken. And it's this little Buddha guy with the big belly. He's basically just about naked. And he's sitting there just having a good old time. Big old smile on his face. But I'm pretty sure their motto is, it's myrrh is king. Well, that totally contradicts the Bible. It says, the fools are in the house of myrrh. We'd be better off, much less better off, getting in sackcloth and ashes and getting before the Lord 
and humbling ourselves before God and crying out for our own sin and getting ourselves right with God, then we would be going to some party and celebrating or whatever or glorying in our shame. We don't have any right to do that. For the most part, we don't. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember the meek shall inherit the earth? Remember meek doesn't mean weak. Humble, contrite. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Is the, is the, again, we've talked a lot about the average church goer. Are they hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Or truth? No! They're following men in vain deceit. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Lukewarm. They're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Are you merciful to other people? Well, if you're not, you're not going to obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Praise the Lord. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Are you a peacemaker? Or do you like to stir up strife and cause division and offenses? Well, oh, you're doing that right now. What are you talking about? No, I'm not. I'm giving you the truth. Jesus said, I can't think not that I came to bring peace unto this earth, but a sword. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. Now, that's not because Jesus came in here to stir up strife, but truth will always separate people. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is a divider. It's a divider. It will divide you with your family, most likely. If they're not Christians, it's going to split you apart. But you're going to have to choose whom this day you're going to serve. You know, that's that's just part of the deal of being a real Christian. Most of the time. Unless you were born into that type of family. You know, I wish I had been, but I wasn't. Nobody in my family that's currently living is a Christian. Nobody. Not even close, as far as I can tell. I pray to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, save their souls. I have given them tracts, witnessed to many of them. You know... But the Lord, you know, the Lord has to open those doors for you, and He's the only one that can save their souls. So, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you being persecuted now for righteousness' sake at all? Like, because of the stance you're taking... Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Most of the time, if you come out of one of these apostate churches for the very reasons that we're talking about today, you're going to be reviled by them. They're going to persecute you and they shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty sad state of affairs. When you have that going on in the church. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So you're in good company. And they did it to Jesus Christ and the apostles and, you know, obviously. And, and we just talked about this. Verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. This is what happens when you don't bear fruit. Remember when Jesus came by the fig tree? You know, and, and it wasn't bearing fruit? He cursed it. We, want, we need to be bearing fruit as Christians, Right? is thenceforth good for nothing, to be cast down, to be trodden under the foot of men. This is very similar to that. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. That's what Jesus Christ called the New Testament Bible-believing Christian. The light of the world. Okay? The Holy Spirit lives inside you. That's the light. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick, and giveth light unto all them that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works. Now many times, I've heard this expression say, you know, preach the gospel everywhere, and if necessary, use words. Okay? In other words, live your life in such a way, let your light so shine before men, that they will see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the, that's the example. Now, there's not enough darkness in the world. Think about this. There's not enough darkness in the world to extinguish one candle. Darkness can't extinguish a candle. And light always overcomes darkness, if you think about it. Darkness, I mean, darkness can't impose itself on light. Light always beats darkness. Every time. Interesting points here to uh, to consider. Last verse I want to go over here is um, Deuteronomy 21, verse 8. Deuteronomy 21, verse 8, where it says, Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood under the people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So this is another way that innocent blood can be compensated. Now I've talked about a lot of things that, that I really believe God expects us to do in regard to innocent blood that's shed. We talked about charity. Okay, just, just previously. We talked before about where, where Jesus had breathed upon them. And he, and he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained unto them. We talked about other things. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and seek, seek their face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and hear their land. Heal their land. There, there are things. Praying and fasting. Here, here's another one. So that, I mean, he's asking not to lay innocent blood under the people of Israel's charge. This is something we can do in prayer. And then it says, And the blood shall be forgiven them. So, show, so shall thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. That's another way 
So, this, it's not as though we're helpless. And the one thing I don't like about this particular article is it doesn't really get into enough of the things we do about this problem. Okay, and I'm, I have said before, only the blood of Jesus Christ can, can, can pay our sin debt and cover these things. I'm talking about, in context of that, as a born-again Christian, what can we do in regard to this problem that we're talking about today? Now, let's go further. As Americans, Christians, or otherwise, whether we like it or not, or believe it or not, most people's hands are covered with blood. We can pray, worship all we want, but God and His Word does not change. Ichabod, the glory has departed, could easily hang from the doorposts of most Americans' churches. Very true. And yet, most carry on with our church programs, oblivious to the absence of God's presence among us, and His judgments upon our sin-soaked and blood-stained land. How can we right this wrong? What can we do to eradicate this blood from our hands? Merciful God provides the solution. After God pronounces, your hands are covered with innocent blood, He then gives important directives that we must heed. In the King James Version, I'm just trying to say I wrote a note to myself. In the King James Version, the Word of God says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, and learn to do good. In other words, the first thing necessary to cleanse ourselves of innocent blood is we must repent. Okay, we must repent. Always the prerequisite. The Bible, Jesus said, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. See, most of the time, people that think they get saved, they pray some little prayer. There's no repentance. There's no conviction of sin. They have no intention of changing their ways whatsoever. They don't have any desire to do it. And the only reason they're praying the prayer is so that they can get a get-out-of-hell-free card. If, if the truth be known, no true conversion really took place because there's no change or conviction of sin or lifestyle or anything like that. And the church barely causes any of that to any conviction of that problem to come upon them anyway. The Church of America must repent of what we have done and what we have not done for the least of these. God requires biblical repentance that is found in Second Corinthians seven verses nine through eleven, which states, Now I rejoice that ye were made sorry, not not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. See, godly sorrow worketh repentance, right? For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. Oh boy, do we need this in the churches. That ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. See, worldly sorrow worketh death. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. See, how do you get saved? You come to God all puffed up and proud. Yeah, I'll get saved. Whatever. No. True, true repentance unto salvation involves godly sorrow. Understanding the sin-sick state that you're in. Understanding that you're on your way to hell. Considering the pit from whence you were dug. Most people don't want to do that. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I, I'm, you know, they judge themselves by other people or whatever. 
But we are all together as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's haughtiness. Pride. When you think that you're pretty good in God's eyes... Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Now the Bible also says the goodness of the Lord leadeth thee to repentance as well. The goodness of the Lord leadeth thee to repentance. So godly sorrow worketh repentance, which goes unto salvation. And the goodness of the Lord also leadeth thee to repentance. That's another thing that does it. So I just want to have that biblical balance there to talk about both. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, fear of what God, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. To be clear, to have like a clean slate. Because you've actually repented in a godly way. Before the Lord. The blood of Jesus Christ has covered that sin debt. The church must speak and act in such a way that we clear ourselves of this grave matter before God. It's not going to happen for the most part, unfortunately. I pray to God it happens with the remnant. The truth is, abortion continues in America. is not based upon what the enemies of Jesus Christ say and do. But what the church of Jesus Christ fails to say and do. Because as the church goes, so goes the nation. We must repent. Secondly, God says, essentially, learn to do good, seek justice, and these types of things. The church, for the most part, wants to be nice. Smiley Joe Osteen, he wants to be nice. We recoil from conflict and confrontation, and yet God demands we rebuke those who oppress mankind, the mankind Jesus died to redeem. Now, if we... Okay, so where can we prove this? Well, if we go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, that's what we're doing today, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, reproving isn't something fun to the person you're reproving. It's like reproving, rebuking, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. See, that's why I try to use the Bible to justify everything we're saying today. Doctrine. The doctrine of the Word of God. For the time will come, and it's here now, when they will not endure sound doctrine, that's where we're at, but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, And they shall turn their ears away from truth and be turned unto fables. That's what we got in most churches. Fables. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21 says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings. 
and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Absolutely. Colossians 2.8 Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. Finally, God says, to relieve the oppressed. Defend the followers, plead for the widow. The prophet Jeremiah echoes these same admonishment when he says in Jeremiah 5.28, They are waxen fat, yea, they shine, yea, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the followers, yet they prosper. In the right of the needy do they not judge. This is something God doesn't like. They wax and fat. They overpass the deeds of the wicked, though. They judge. They don't judge the cause of the followers, they, yet they prosper. See, God typically lets people have it their way for a while. Then it goes on to say, To be cleansed of innocent blood, the church must arise to intervene on behalf of those being led away to the slaughter. Proverbs 24, verse 11 and 12 says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, forbear means you abstain, you, 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 you forbear, you don't do it in a timely manner. You abstain from doing it. If you forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? I'd be honest with you, that's part of the reason I have this ministry. Because I've been given much, therefore much is required of me. I'm trying not to abstain to deliver those that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. That's why I have this many. I'm, I'm afraid what God would do to me if I didn't do this. I really am. It says, Behold, we knew it not. Doth not he know? Pondereth the heart, consider it. And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? See, he knows your heart. And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Well, again, I really don't want to push the envelope on that one. Not to say I'm, in, I'm looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ by any stretch of the imagination. Not the great white throne judgment. That's where the unbelievers go. The judgment seat of Christ is what it says where we all must appear. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Not the love seat. The judgment I don't think it's going to be a fun place for the vast majority of people. Now, hey, if you had really lived a life, you know, no wood, hair, stubble, precious stones, gold and silver, I pray to God, you know, for that, for my own self, for, for the people that I know, for the remnant. But I'm just saying for the average Christian. It says that many will be saved there, yet so as by fire. They'll be saved. I don't really exactly know what that means. I don't really want to find out. I think it's hard to be really dogmatic about that verse. But, you know, it's like the Bible talks about, you see through a glass now but darkly, but then face to face. So if we go further, the church, regardless of our personal callings, must obey God's commands. It's not a suggestion to rescue those unjustly sentenced to death. Deuteronomy 21, 1-9 verifies that God's people must do what they must do to be cleansed of innocent blood. 
This was God's instructions to his people whenever anyone was found slain, and it was not known who did the killing. This is how important innocent blood is. Scripture reads, Your elders and your judges shall come forth, and they shall measure the distance to the cities which are round about him that is slain. That they find slain. They don't know who did it. Those from the nearest city then needed to be sacrificed. Those from the nearest city then... Now, now I'm not quoting Bible. But those from the nearest city to whoever they found slain needed to sacrifice the heifer. And their elders were to pray these words when they sacrificed the heifer. Quote, Our hands did not shed this blood, neither did our eyes see it shed. Forgive, O Lord, thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and set not the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of thy people Israel, but let the guilt of blood be forgiven them. That's how important one innocent person who they found slain was to make sure that the, that that person's innocent blood didn't fall collectively upon that particular city. Our attitude, for the most part, in America, I'll just use that as an example, is so flippant about innocent blood. You know, you turn on the nightly news, oh, you know, Britney's whatever, having custody battles again. Or they've got all this just total garbage, glorifying sodomy. All these seemingly, to me, trivial matters. You know what really should be on the very first story of every nightly news? You know, news flash. Fourteen innocent children slaughtered today at the abortion mill. And give the address. And the news reporter's there in sackcloth and ashes. I know this isn't going to happen. But that's what we should be doing. You know what I mean? That should be the number one story every night. 4,000 children slaughtered across America. Because that's, from the, from the statistics that I heard, that's about how many children are aborted in America every day. About 4,000. Probably more than that now. Probably more than that anyway. 4,000 children, their innocent blood's crying out from the land. And yesterday there was 4,000 the day before that. Here we have one person dying in the Bible that they don't even know, and they, they didn't even do it, and they go through all this stuff just to make sure that that person's innocent blood doesn't fall upon them. And we have 4,000 innocent babies that nobody, that, that, that nobody most, most people could care less about being slaughtered every day across America. I can't even imagine the judgment that that we've stored up. I can't even imagine it in America. And you know that judgment's our only hope, if you think about it, too. Because if man is just allowed to keep sinning and keep living like the devil, eventually wickedness would just consume the whole world. To a point where, you know, if, like the Bible talks about, if he hadn't shortened that time, there wouldn't be anyone left. Or it talks about that in the Bible. If God hadn't shortened the time, the righteous, all the righteous would essentially perish. Don't let that make you afraid. Because the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we, we, ha- we will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. If you love your life, not under the death. 
You're chosen for this battle. Well, how do you know? Because you're here. You're listening to this. He's, there's just a very small remnant. It's like Gideon's army. Just a very small remnant. I, I just really pray that that remnant really glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we go further, <clears throat> what is happening is the innocent blood is shed, something happens in the land, or the, it defiles the land. Something happens to the people in the land and their relationship to God regarding this doctrine of blood guilt, even if they were not the ones who even shed the blood. That's the scriptural precedent that we're looking at here in this last verse I just read. The doctrine of blood guiltiness makes clear the people of God are bound up in an in inescapable mutuality, a responsibility for one another that transcends their own choosing. So if you can just sit back and say, oh, bless God, you know, yeah, I know they're born babies and stuff like that. That's not my problem. That's not what this, that's not what this says. It, it will affect you. This confirms the revelation taught in Isaiah 1, 10-17 when God tells His people, your hands are full of blood. Even though most of them had probably nothing to do with the actual shedding of that actual blood they were guilty of. They may not have been the ones who were doing the killing, but because the killing was occurring in their midst, they had a responsibility to intervene. Now, I don't think this means going out like some of these guys have done and blowing up abortion clinics. Okay, I'm not saying that. Okay, so don't any misquote me on that. And then it says, what of us? Our land is polluted with innocent blood of tens of millions of aborted children. It is enough in the sight of God that we ourselves have not done the killing. Scripture says, this is not enough. We know where the killing is occurring. We know how and who, and we know who is doing it. According to Deuteronomy 21, the American church cannot pray that our eyes have not seen it, or thus our sin of complacency and omission remains. Abortion is publicly advertised and advocated because it occurs in our midst and we, for the most part, do not lift up our voice or finger to stop it. We are inescapably involved and held accountable for the blood. This is scary stuff. Deuteronomy 21.9 says, So shall thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. To be cleansed of innocent blood, we must do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Now, in this study, we've attempted to we've attempted to relay what is biblically right in the sight of the Lord. That's what we've tried to do. That's why, I'm, I mean, this is the fifth part, and I really should go to the next part, but I'm almost done here, so I'm just going to finish this out. If we meet the Lord's conditions, the promise of Isaiah 118 can be fulfilled upon our act of obedience. Which says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice the color God uses to describe sin in this passage. It is not black, but it's red. Most preachers use this particular verse to evangelize the lost. In this context, however, God is not speaking to the lost, but to his people whose hands are covered with blood. That's the context of the verse. If we truly repent and intervene on behalf of the fatherless, the widows, the oppressed, the innocent, though our sins are scarlet and crimson, they shall be white as snow. How, how do you primarily intervene from a New Testament biblical standard? Well, granted, yeah, we talked a lot about ways, but also... In prayer and fasting, this is another way to intervene. I've heard of 
people that have went... Now, I used to um, go... There was a, a local abortion clinic. I would go there in the mornings when I had time, and I would actually go in my truck, and I would pray outside in my truck. And I, I've heard of organizations going to these types of places, and... Um, collectively coming together in prayer, where, where you remember you have more than one person there praying, you're amplifying the results, particularly if those people are right with God. And I've, I've heard of abortion clinics being shut down in very short periods of time. Just for these people outside praying. And I don't think it need, needs to actually be outside where you're actually, let's say, breaking some type of law. Like, let's say they have things posted and, you know, you're not allowed to, to whatever, okay? Well, even if you're in your car or your truck outside praying, I don't think you're breaking any laws there. You can still pray. And if you're fasting at the same time, you're going to amplify the results. It's supercharging your prayers. These are just some things that, that you know, that we can do as well. Not to mention all the other things I've mentioned in this teaching. There may be some who will kick against, they call it kick against the goads, that's a biblical term, concerning this doctrine. Some may mistakenly claim that I'm advocating the doctrine of blood guiltiness is greater than the doctrine of the blood of Christ. This is not so. The doctrine of blood guiltiness does not mean that we in the true church are, who are born of God's Spirit are not saved. This doctrine does not cancel or override our eternal state in heaven with Christ. It does mean biblically, however, that there are severe consequences associated with our disobedience and ignorance of this doctrine that most certainly concern our temporal time here on earth. Unfortunately, it will probably be our children and our grandchildren that will suffer the lion's share of the horror when God exacts His just, justice and demands an accounting. The truth did not escape the founding fathers of America. George Mason, known as the father of the Bill of Rights, declared, quote, Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven upon a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this world. By an inevitable chain of cause and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. Well, that's what we have coming. We're, this national sin is going to be punished with national calamities. You know, you can look at what's going on in Iowa right now and make a pretty good case for that. Now, I understand the government has the ability to man manipulate weather, and they've had that a long time, since the early 70s. And I pro pro proved that in my avian flu presentation up on the internet. Uh, that's not a matter of debate. That's a matter of just looking what's on public record. So, whether the Lord's using that, uh, we have a, we have technology in this country called HARP, which is able to manipulate weather patterns and these types of things. Um, one of the Illuminati's goals is to create order out of chaos. Now, whether God, obviously God's permitting whatever's going on with the weather patterns. And the, Jesus Christ said it was going to be this way. So there was going to be earthquakes and in and, and diverse places and these types of things and pestilences and all kind of these types of calamities in the end time. So this is something that we should look up. We, we should just be seeing confirming of Scripture. So we have abortion and her evil twin sister sodomy are national sins that beg for national calamity. We're begging for calamity. God always destroys nations that, that embrace this. Particularly if the church is silent. We have so sowed 
to the wind, and America will end up reaping the whirlwind, lest we repent. It's not going to happen. We're not going to collectively repent in America. Now, the remnant can, for maybe complacency. I'm not saying all the remnant's complacent, but I believe a large portion of it, at least in America, probably is. The church cannot make up for our previous failings in delivering the innocent blood from the hands of the wicked, but fortunately the blood of another innocent man also speaks. Jesus' blood speaketh better things, which is mercy, than that of Abel, which cried out... See, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. The innocent blood. Remember when Jesus, when, when um, the Lord went to uh, Cain? He said, your, the blood of your innocent brother cries out from the land? And that's when he said, what, am I my, I'm not my brother's keeper? Like got sarcastic with the Lord. But see, the blood of Jesus Christ speaketh better things, which is mercy, than that of Abel, which cries out for vengeance. According to Hebrews 12.24, Therefore let the church in America repent of abortion, wash ourselves in the blood of Jesus Christ, and get to work defending the innocent. When we don't do this, it's essentially called the sin of silence. We're just sitting around... We're being silent about it. And we're not earnestly contending for the faith. Or trying to defend the fatherless and the innocent and the children and the widows. These are all things that are very, very, very near and dear to, to the Lord Jesus Christ's heart. He said true religion is this. Where it talks about pleading the cause of the widow and the fatherless and the innocent and these types of things. So, that's where we're going to stop today. And I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. I do pray, Lord God, that myself included, Lord, we would, we would really apply this teaching to our heart. Lord God, that the cares of this world would not overtake us, Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ. That we would keep in mind what's truly important in your eyes, Lord, because what's important in our eyes many times is totally different than what's important in your eyes. I pray, Lord God, that our hearts would become right with thee, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I do pray to God that you would forgive us for our complacency, Lord God in heaven. I, I just I pray and I beg for your for your forgiveness. Lord, in regard to this matter of the doctrine of blood guilt, I just pray, God, that we would individually and collectively do whatever you would require us to do in regard to this matter. That we would not be complacent in regard to this, because I know that these two issues, that with, with um, the shedding of innocent blood, and with the sodomy overtaking the world, with the homosexuality, I, I know these two things are what always brings your most severe judgment. I pray to God that you would protect your remnant. That you would use us mightily for your glory. That through what you would do through us, and that not in of ourselves, but through thee, that your name would be glorified and that many would be saved. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.